Hey everybody, welcome back to another edition of STT Interviews. This month we are excited to get to sit down with Samantha Corbin Miller, who uh, wore many different hats on the show uh, between 1996 and 1998. She was a writer for seven episodes, story editor for 21 episodes, executive story editor for one episode, and co-producer for five episodes. Samantha, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. Thank you. Nice to be here. So to kind of get us off on the right foot, tell us a little bit how you got your start as a writer and what led to you getting the job uh, on ER. Let's see. Um, well, I went to the UCLA um, MFA program for screenwriting, and I was lucky enough to be in a screenwriting seminar uh, taught by a gentleman named Dan Pine, who um, is a fantastic screenwriter, television writer, all around good guy. And um, he was impressed enough by a script that I wrote in his screenwriting class to offer me a staff writing job on his ABC uh, at the time show um, called The Marshall. All right, cool. I actually, I think you're the first uh, staff writer that we've had, mm -hmm. right? Uh, we've, yeah, I was, like, I was like, we've had production people, but I, I believe you're our first writer. So this is gonna be really exciting for us to get some extra insight. Oh, nice. Yeah, I uh, I really I cut my teeth on ER. Yeah, I noticed the the um, specs you have are a little those are odd. It's always odd what how the Internet parses stuff up. But basically, <laughs> um, yeah, I was a staff writer for the for the first year, um, a, a story editor, executive uh, story editor for my second year and um, a co-producer for my third year. So, yeah, it's always interesting how they parse out those things. I'm like, OK, some mm -hmm. algorithm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And actually, that, that leads us great into our second question. Um, when we're looking at an episode, we see a variety of different ways a writer can be credited. Written by, story by, teleplay by, etc. Can you explain for us the difference between these credit types and what they mean for you as a writer? Yeah, I mean, it's pretty it's pretty straightforward and, and it's pretty, uh, it's standard across the board, um, not just for me. Written by... Uh, these are all, you know, Writers Guild designations. Um, mm -hmm. So written by means you wrote the whole thing from the conception of the idea through, you know, the, the words on the page and, and the action on the page. So the, the whole thing. Um, the teleplay, um, you know, means that you wrote uh, the actual script. Um, so you could have a teleplay by credit um but you didn't necessarily write the story so mm -hmm. you didn't necessarily outline it or, or conceive of the idea you just wrote the script based on an idea that came from somewhere else and mm -hmm. so teleplay by is the opposite you perhaps you know conceived of the story wrote the outline but someone else actually took that outline and put it into script form okay cool gotcha uh, so, like, I'm sure it changed a lot over the years, um, but at the time, like, you were there, like, how, on average, how many different writers would kind of poke and prod at a, at a given script in a given week? Um, you know, it was a very egalitarian room, and, and we would break stories, which means, you know, sort of, uh, you know get the rough strokes of what each character was going to be going through and what the rough strokes of what every episode was going to be about um mm -hmm. you know as a group of you know eight or nine of us or however many you know writers were working any given year um you know that that was the thing that that john wells was very 
much about. We we would be in the writer's room uh, three days a week with no no exceptions, no uh, you know no excuses. I forget exactly what days it was. I want to say like Monday, Wednesday, Friday, um, and that was sacrosanct time where we all uh, you know kind of wove the the story arcs and the the episodes together. Um, you know, but then once we sort of knew the general thing, like if we knew, okay, this is the episode where, you know, these two are going to, you know, their love affair is going to break up, you know, this one's going to have a hard surgical case that, you know, puts him at odds with his supervisor, you know, that those kind of rough, you know, Mm -hmm. steps, um, you know, once we'd figure out, figured out all of those rough moves for each of the characters at that point, whoever the writer or the writers of the episode were would take, you know, take that rough, uh, idea and, and turn it into an outline and eventually a script. Gotcha. Well, that kind of perfectly takes us into the next question. When you're crafting an episode, what's your specific process like, and how long would it usually take you to get a rough idea of how everything's going to play out? Um, you know, the good news about, or good news or bad news, I guess, depending on your, your point of view about television <laughs> is, uh, there's not a whole lot of room for personal process. It's, um, it's very schedule driven because especially sure. with a broadcast show, it's like, you got to get that next episode out there on online and, and shooting you, you no right. excuses. Um, so television in general works extremely quickly, especially on the broadcast side. Um, it usually takes about anywhere from, I would say six to 10 weeks from the original, like gleam of a, a glimmer in your eye of an idea to they're rolling camera on it and, and shooting it. So it's, it's really fast. Um, you know, depending on how tight the schedule is usually, um, the later you get in the season, the more the previous delays and and whatnot have snowballed and everyone has right. less time, but it's this, you know, kind of vicious cycle. Cause at the point that everyone's more stressed, everyone has less time is exactly the time that <laughs> you know, you, you, you have kind of the least energy to write. And so, you know, I always say pity the poor writer who has to write episode 19. Like that's always <laughs> episode 19 is like, that is the beaches of Normandy. That is where writers go to die. Um, you know, in a 22 order because everyone's burnt out, you don't have that energy and you don't have like that extra sort of like, ah, oh, last adrenaline to climb the final right. three episodes where it's like, you know, you know, you're building up to the big climax or the big thing or the what it's just sitting there. just like a dead fish. Like, oh, Oh, you've you've listened to our show (laughs) (laughs) why do you have like the hate here's our hate it's not it's not that we have hated episodes it's that we we do notice kind of that trend of the crests and valleys of each season where you know you can tell either stuff from a production side of things you know people were getting exhausted or you know it's like you said the staff writers you only have so much to work with in a given season and sometimes you've got to let stuff breathe and what does that end up looking like so yeah we we do notice that late season kind of lull lull and then it comes back always with a strong finish so it's 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 nice that we have a a solid reason we can point to for it now yeah yeah Yeah. i would i mean you know someone could probably do like a doctoral thesis like you know the the vector or whatever of uh Mm -hmm. rotten tomatoes bad reviews to episode 19 something something um but yeah yeah. you you just gave daniel an idea for another (laughs) bonus episode but that, that is i mean that does bring up an interesting point though i mean a couple we've talked about a lot on the main show about how um especially the early seasons it very much feels like a case study and why 
the Netflix model kind of took over later of like 13 to 15 episodes seems like a little bit more of like the sweet spot for where you can tell really tight, cohesive stories without having to have the burden of an episode 19 where you're having those lulls and things that kind of trimmed the fat a little bit later. Um, but there's also like I'm assuming they're probably like you said with there being that pressure to get a new episode out every Thursday there's not really a ton of time for you to reflect or appreciate a given episode after it goes out you kind of just like get it out the door and then you're on to the next one you're not even thinking about whether or not the one you just put out was any good you're just like yeah on to the next right like yeah you're I mean you're just pretty relieved that you're out of the hot seat at that point in time and that someone else is under the gun of production or prep or whatever um you know so you usually get maybe about a week to exhale and get some sleep and then it's like (laughs) you're back on that wheel of okay come up with the next one (laughs) yeah (sighs) But your your first episode was in early season three. Um, it's a very memorable one for us, especially called Last Call, where Doug brings home a date into the ER after she suffers a pretty severe seizure. Um, do you have any memories of putting this first episode together? And were you happy with the finished product? Yeah, I mean, I'll tell you that episode because it was my first episode there. And um, I remember I was terrified. You know, I, I literally I'd spent half a season on the Marshall, which was my first ever show, you know, mm-hmm. coming out of school um, before it was canceled, you know, and, and after mm-hmm. that show was canceled, I was unemployed for seven months and literally an agent had appeared out of nowhere, like jumped out of a tree and said, hi, I'm your agent. <laughs> like, and when I got that job and I was like, okay, I guess you're my agent. And, and when the show got canceled, he uh, faded back into the bush, like the Homer Simpson <laughs> meme. Like, oh, like, so good. Weird, you know, didn't return my calls and I was really stressed out. And I finally got uh, a new agent um, and, and he got me on ER, you know, like within a couple of weeks of signing with this miracle worker. Wow. And, um, at that point, when I came on, you know, season three, the show was a juggernaut, you know, mm-hmm. it, it was, right. I mean, it was the number one show in America. Like we were getting 40, 45 million v- viewers a week, like on just an average work a day episode, um, you know, and I'm this new kid and I was very much a kid, you know, uh, coming into season three in this like legendary room of, of superstars, you know, so I was just intimidated. I mean, beyond beyond belief um mm-hmm. and you know i figured maybe they'd like give me an episode or half an episode late in rotation i figured like i'll start just, episode 19 like i'll, I'll yeah, just roll right. in they'll put me somewhere where i can't do any damage and uh instead they were like you're writing episode four and i was like what <laughs> say what <laughs> um so yeah they said you're doing episode four and then they were like oh and by the way we want you to destroy america's sweetheart doug ross like if you could do that that would be great <laughs> you know so it was like <laughs> off the dome it was like oh okay no pressure no pressure at all um so the, the story um was actually uh based on a doctor I'd, I'd spoken to who shall remain nameless um who had an experience of a one night stand having a, a medical emergency and and having to bring them in and you know their experience wasn't as dramatic as, as the the doug sure. ross experience i don't think that they uh you know brought this this person in you know in 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 their arms but um right. you know but you know it, it was it had its its 
impetus in, in, in truth, like so many of our stories did. And, um, you know, in terms of the finished product, um, I mean, I was beyond thrilled. Like it was unbelievable, like to this day, um, you know, and I've written a ton of stuff since, uh, it really is one of the episodes of television I'm most proud of having written. Absolutely. Well uh, I will let you know for from a personal um, note, that episode still hits as hard as it did when it aired. Um, I personally have epilepsy and my sister and I both do actually. And that's one that we we will watch. But it's 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 a good one. It's very well done. And like it's the best lesson for wear your med alert tags, kids. Uh, Don't. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, like just so when I when we were actually looking through your um your film, your oh, my God, I'm. Your portfolio, we'll say it that way. When we were looking through your list of episodes, I'm sorry, it's been a long weekend, um, and I realized that that this was one of the, your first episodes. I was just like, oh my god, we get to talk to her, like. <laughs> so yeah, this is one that definitely sticks out in my mind. And when we had to do the rewatch, um, uh, almost a year ago now, I was just still chills. Oh, um, thank you. That that means that means a lot. Like whenever I talk to someone who has like that kind of personal connection and, mm -hmm. you know, just the idea of something actually, you know, feeling, feeling real and feeling impactful in the real world. Like that mm -hmm. is honestly, like that is the, you know, the biggest compliment in, in the world. So thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. That's, that's my little personal side note, but, um, moving on, you had mentioned that it was a, a juggernaut by the time you had started and, um, ER, was a show that hung its hat not only on fast-paced dialogue, but also the medical accuracy as well. Um, how much of an adjustment was it for you to tailor your writing style to fit the speed and authenticity that the show was looking for? I mean, honestly, for me, you know, I've always been a very dialogue first kind of writer. Um, you know, in, in college, I, I double majored in government and theater. So like verbosity, I'm like, <laughs> I live there. <laughs> That's what I do. Um, so so that wasn't so much an issue. Um, and as for the medical dialogue, you know, we had all these amazing doctor writers and tech mm -hmm. advisors, mm -hmm. you know, Neil and Lance and Joe and Fred. And so they, they were the ones who would give us that medical, you know, terminology and scenarios to match whatever, you know, character interactions or, or dramatic moments we were trying to hit um, and, and turn it into accurate technical writing, you right. know? Um, and so the fact that we had emergency room doctors, you know, who were also incredible writers and understood both disciplines so well, kind of right there in the room, you know, right by our sides, it was such a blessing, you know, and, and, and really the fact that the show kept it so real was 100% due to them. You know, it was their right. talents, mm -hmm. their generosity, um, you know, and, and, you know, I mean, honestly, like after that, I'd worked, I've worked, you know, with plenty of technical writers and, or tech, you know, technical advisors in other disciplines who are just, you know, they're great at what they do. You know, they're a great lawyer, they're a great doctor, they're a great whatever. But, um, you know, it is such a, a jump to be able to take your real world expertise and then be able to sort of bend it in the way that it needs to be bent to a dramatic scenario. Mm -hmm. You know, you get a whole right. lot of, well, that would never happen, you know, as opposed to like, is, you know, how can we massage yeah. this? So we're still within the contours of truth, but you know, we, we have some stuff that we got to hit. Um, right. you know, but that being said, I've never seen scripts as long as ER scripts in my television <laughs> career. I mean, you know, I remember seeing an occasional 80 page long script for, for, a you know, 
60 minute long episode. And to give you an idea, you know, most hour long shows run about 50 pages. So, you know, but the fact that everyone was talking so fast, you know, we could cram in so much more. And, and like I say, since this was really, you know, where, where I cut my teeth and, and where I grew up in television, I had to get used to writing much shorter scripts when I went on to other shows. Cause I was just, I was used to that, that kind of pace. Right. Um, you kind of touched on this a little bit earlier, but um, with such an ensemble main cast and this expansive assortment of supporting cast, you know, nurses, desk clerks, uh, doctors and surgeons and other departments, how would you balance or how did you balance making sure that everybody is used to their fullest potential when writing a given episode? Um you know, it was, it was a juggling act for sure. Um, you know, we, we, as a room, we would map out every, uh, you know, every character season arc episode by episode on these big whiteboards that were mounted all around the room, you know, numbered one through 22. So it's kind of like you, you go through and you'd be like, all right, you know, what's John Carter doing in, you know, going forward episode one, episode two, episode, you know, and, and, um, you know, you do that for, for each character. Um, so it was pretty easy to just eyeball and make sure that every character was, you know, getting served and, and, you know, moving, you know, throughout the course of the season. Um, you know, and I would say, you know, because we, we would spend days at a time, you know, for each individual character, you know, we kept, refining obviously as we made discoveries or you know if a storyline was popping or something wasn't really happening it's like we we could you know course course correct as the season went on um mm-hmm. you know and, and you know just you know find those kinds of discoveries through performance or, or through story um but but because of that system we never lost anyone in the shuffle even when we had 11 leads which was the case when i was there <laughs> So. Yeah, yeah. You look at some of those cast pictures from the beginning of each season, and it was like it would just grow and grow exponentially. It seemed like every season they were they'd have to pull the camera further and further back to get them all in there. Exactly. So, and this kind of uh, goes right along with that, I guess. Um, as a writer, how challenging is it for you to write the stories that you want to tell while still staying true to those larger story arcs of the characters on a show like ER? You know, arcs that would you know last multiple seasons. Um, I would say it wasn't challenging at all, you know, one, because we were all part of breaking the character arcs. So, you know, by the time I was writing any particular episode, there was always like a little piece of my DNA, you know, in every character's mm-hmm. journey. Um, and, and the great thing about, you know, having so many different characters and, you know, just the beauty of the the multiple tones that lived within every episode of ER, you know, that that you were able to use like every color in the paint box, you know, from humor to tragedy, you know, because I was thinking about the episode uh, Masquerade, which was a Halloween episode that I wrote with Dr. Joe. And, and, you know, we went from a schizophrenic woman who discovers she's pregnant, you know, and all the issues involved in that, you know, that journey. And then, you know, uptight, you know, stick up his ass, Dr. Benton dressing up a shaft and going on a hayride, you know, so it was just like another night at County General, like it's, it's got it all. And, uh, and not for nothing, um, talk about terrified, I would say, if the most terrifying moment of, of, uh, of, of being on ER was that, you know, being, being thrown, you know, episode four and destroyed Doug Ross, I would say the second most terrifying moment was 
you know, knowing that a script was about to land on Eric LaSalle's desk saying, you're dressing up like Shaft for Halloween <laughs> and saying how he was going to handle that because uh, Eric is so serious. Like he is the sweetest dude, but it's like he is like he does have a lot of that, like Dr. Benton en energy. And so mm -hmm. I was kind of like, oh, boy, if this goes over like a wet balloon, there is my name right there on that. <laughs> right. Just just very serious about his craft yeah exactly <laughs> exactly and this was probably the goofiest thing that he had ever had to yeah so far yeah. on the show you know maybe certainly so far maybe 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 in the entire time he was there i mean we and lauren and i just did a couple weeks ago for halloween um with a an er group on facebook we did a halloween trivia <sighs> night for and we did all the halloween episodes and of course there was right there smack in the middle was the picture of uh eric lasalle dressed as uh, shaft and yep. i forget what alex kingston was dressed as was like just, raggedy ann or something or i like, think she was like just like an alpine oh yeah like, yeah, that's yeah. Right. she was yeah. like a milkmaid yeah. or something yeah 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 i remember because yeah. the braids yes that's just what sticks yes. in my head that was the question that everybody had was how did they get alex kingston's hair to do that <laughs> oh. uh the, the the what what happens in the makeup and hair trailer stays right in it, hair trailer exactly <laughs> um but that actually that Again, brings us perfectly. It's almost like we plan these. Um, how much input do you like to get from the actors themselves when it comes to writing their individual characters? I mean, you know, for me, I'm always down to have the conversation. Um, but mm -hmm. for the most part, I, I would say or I got the impression the actors were pretty aligned with what we were writing. Um, and if they weren't, that was probably a discussion that was way above my pay grade. That was probably like a phone <laughs> call to John Wells. So, um, but yeah, I will say... Yeah, I don't I don't think I ever had any any storyline, you know, thrown back with a right. you know, so and so doesn't agree with and maybe it was like hidden enough that it was like, oh, maybe we should change this and I never knew where it came from. It it was just layered in the politics of, you know, by the time it gets to you it's it's a sticky note saying, "Let's reevaluate." <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. But, you know, the fact that I I got Eric LaSalle, you know, to dress like Shaft and go on a hayride, I'm like after that it's yeah. all gravy. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. And it's such an iconic moment from the early seasons, too. So well done. Um, how much cooperation and collaboration is there between the writer and director of a given episode? And who were some of your favorite directors to work with? Um, well, I will say, you know, in TV, unlike features, um, you know, writers run the show. Um, you yeah. know, showrunners are writers, um, you know, the writers are the day-to-day -day staff, you know, who are there, you know, year in, year out, whereas um, directors, for the most part, come in for a few weeks, they do their episode and, and they move on. Um, you know, but what's great is the show like ER that manages to stay around for a while, you know, certain directors, you know, they become house favorites, you know, they do multiple episodes a year, you know, they keep coming back, you know, and of course, there's also in-house producer directors who are part of the permanent staff, you know, like, like Chris Chulak, um, mm -hmm. you know, who, who did sharp relief. And, um, you know, what I love about Chris is he was so super chill and unflappable, but he knew what he wanted. Like he was one of those, like, you know, iron fist in the velvet glove kind of guys, <laughs> like so chill, but it was like, you know, he, he had his vision, um, which are, you know, great qualities in a director producer. 
Um, you know, for last call, they brought back Rod Holcomb, you know, who, right. who um, did the pilot, you know, and he he created the template, you know, he he created the, the look of the show and that groundbreaking, you know, look that you think about. So, you know, to have the man himself <laughs> directing right. my first episode was such an honor, you know, amazing. And, and you know, he's also a, a lovely human being, um, you know, just a warm, lovely person. Um, and, you know, Paris Barkley, who I think is still president of the writer or the director's guild, um, or very recently, um, he directed, you know, calling Dr. Hathaway, um, you know, and he's another, you know, great, great guy, great sense of humor. Um, you know, and back in the nineties, you know, there weren't a whole lot of black directors working in television, you know, yeah. it's like, so that was, you know, very cool to, you know, to, to have him as a part of my episode, you know, and, and, you know, to, you know, that he was such an important part of that, you know, extended ER family, um, you know, Darnell Martin, you know, she's a woman of color. I'm a woman of color. You know, she was out there doing her thing. She did um, Ground Zero, you know, so, you know, that was kind of a cool thing. The show was just very inclusive, you know, not just mm -hmm. in, in front of the camera, but behind the camera, you know, and, and once again, it's like, you know, times they are a changing and, and not such a, a big thing, you know, maybe now and in, in, you know, the end of 2021, but you know, back in the day in, in the nineties, that, that was oh, yeah. very different. So. Yeah. I mean, I, I know for sure there's quite a few more um, writers and directors of color uh, as we got along in the seasons, but, and, and you may, you may not know, but were you the first uh, writer of color on the show? Um, cause I, I don't remember, I mean, obviously we knew some of the names, like you said, like Joe Sachs and, uh, Mimi later and Lydia Woodward and, uh, some of the Carol Flint's like, there was quite a few names that we got to know over the course of a few, but I think you're the first one that I remember noting that I was like, Oh, we finally have a writer of color. I wonder, could you be the first? I just, I was just like, I, yes. I might be. <laughs> yes, I was. There <laughs> yes. you go. You can add that to your resume. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, no, I think, yeah, and after me, um, I think Chris Chris Matt came in, who's actually a, a dear friend of mine, and he's now a, a fancy Netflix executive, Ooh. and uh, and the dearly departed uh, David Mills, who, you know, amazing writer, amazing mm. dude. So, yeah, but you are correct, sir. Uh, so you kind of touched on this a little bit earlier as well. Um, a couple of the episodes you wrote were themed episodes, uh, Homeless for the Holidays, a Christmas episode, uh, the previously mentioned Masquerade, a Halloween episode. What's more fun for you creatively taking an established idea like a Christmas episode and trying to find a new spin on an old formula or when you start completely from scratch and build a story that's not centered around a specific theme? Yeah, it's, it's funny, um, you know, because, you know, when I got there, pretty much the whole time I was there, you know, I was, I was like, I was the kid on the staff. Um, mm -hmm. you know, I, I was probably at least 10, you know, if not 15 years younger than like most of the other writers. Um, and you know, so all the more established writers kind of let me know when they handed me a holiday episode that I was getting hazed. <laughs> <laughs> And, um, you know, so, which, you know, I get it, you know, I'm sure once you've written your fourth, you know, Christmas episode, you know, on this, or, you know, trying to be, right. you know, all those other shows that, that they'd worked on before they were so over it. But, you know, for me, as like a first timer. Um, I actually liked it because it gave me some kind of thematic 
tent poles to build upon. It was almost like I wasn't right. starting just from a completely cold page. It was like, you know, you have some stuff you want to hit, whether it, you know, be family or, you know, disguises or people not being what they seem or, you know, whatever. It's like, mm-hmm. it, it's almost like that. It, it, it's like writer's prompt in a way, you know, holiday episodes, um, you know, and, and they're fun. And, you know, the wardrobe's always, always a blast. And, you know, <laughs> I, I like holiday episodes. Don't don't tell anyone though. Well, I guess you well, are. Well, I guess you are. But well, you know, Daniel can always cut that out if you want us to. So don't worry about it. We can keep, keep your secret. secret. I know it's gonna gonna cut to you know Samantha Corbin Miller working at uh, working at Hallmark full time, cranking out those Christmas movies. Hey, <laughs> you said. Uh, I I bet I bet Hallmark's ca- checks still cash just as well as any other place. I bet so. they do. They're gonna chain me to a to a uh, keyboard and be like, start cranking out Christmas in. Oklahoma. <laughs> exactly. Um, so you wore a few different hats during your time on the show, as we mentioned at the top, writer, story editor, co-producer, um, executive story editor, we can't forget. Um, <laughs> can you just talk a little bit about what each role does, uh, how the jobs differ, as well as kind of work together, as I'm sure it's a pretty collaborative process? Yeah, I mean, you know, honestly, for the most part, those all those titles are just titles of like rising seniority, you know, it's like mm. freshman, sophomore, junior, um, you know, staff writers and story editors are the most junior members of the staff. Um, and then as you start taking on producer titles, you have a little bit more seniority, a little bit more autonomy, you know, a little bit more responsibility in terms of production, um, you know, whether it be on set or in casting or post-production editing, or, you know, maybe even overseeing, you know, more junior writers work. Um, but the one thing I will say about, uh, John Wells is he wasn't as strict with titles as a lot of showrunners. Um, you know, most showrunners who, who I worked with after him, um, you know, pretty much from the beginning, he encouraged and expected even staff writers to be present and observe every aspect of, of production. Um, you know, and, and he was very cognizant of the fact that, you know, today's staff writer is going to be tomorrow's executive producer. So, you know, why not get comfortable with all, all of this production from day one? So uh, that was really invaluable experience for me. Yeah. I'm sorry. I just love the, I love the collaborative thing. It's just warm fuzzies. Um, <laughs> is there a particular episode or achievement from your time on the show that you're especially proud of? Um, you know, like I said before, I mean, last call, you know, it was my first episode and it was just so magical and it was so well received, you know, and, and, and like you were saying, it's, it's one of those ones that people remember, you know, all these years later, um, you know, Doug Ross carrying in this limp, lifeless woman and having to, you know, admit he doesn't know her name. And, you know, I mean, it was, it was nominated for a directing Emmy, you know, so, I mean, that was, that was huge, um, you know, in terms of just personal, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, feels. And then, you know, overall, I would say, um, you know, one of the, the biggest things I'm proud of is, is, you know, humanizing people with HIV. Um, you know, a lot of people don't remember, you know, how stigmatized HIV and AIDS were, you know, in the nineties, but, you know, to personify, you know, that illness in a character like Jeannie Boulay and, and, you know, all that heart and empathy and, and, and beauty, you know, um, mm-hmm. and encourage that, that, Gloria brought to that role, you know, so I was really proud of just being part of, you know, opening hearts and minds, you know, um, and, you know, so that, like I say, it's like when stuff touches people in that real world kind of way that that's super, um, you know, gratifying. 
Um, and then I, I would say it also meant a lot to me personally that like great writers, like, you know, the late, great Paul Manning, you know, mm. honestly, one of the best writers I've ever worked with, ever read, um, you know, Whalen Green. I mean, we're talking about Academy Award winner, you know, yeah. Lady Award or Carol Flint, Neil Bayer, you know, these, these incredible writers, you know, they didn't just welcome me into their tribe, um, but they respected my work, you know, as a fellow writer. Um, you know, and I was, I was lucky enough, you know, and, and the proof is really in the pudding because in, in terms of ER, I was thrust upon them, but then, you mm -hmm. know, um, you know, Neil hit me up, you know, years later to work with him on SVU and, um, and actually, actually right after I left ER, I went to work with Waylon, um, Green on a TV show based on, uh, James Elroy's LA Confidential, um, for HBO oh, okay. and, um, the show never went, um, but it was probably one of the most fun experiences I've ever had in a writer's room. So, uh, it would have been an amazing show. Yeah. <laughs> World's lost. It never saw the light of day, but, um, yeah, so that's always, I would say the, you know, that's sort of the utmost, um, respect. I would say a writer can confer on another writer if they, if they hit him up down the road and they're like, Hey, I want to work with you again. Right. Yeah. He made an impression. Yeah. You, you mentioned uh, with Jeannie specifically, like, and, and I know this was not obviously your, your idea or uh, even one single person's idea, but one of the things that we uh, have talked about on the main timeline has been how much we appreciated um, how they didn't treat Jeannie's HIV status as a death sentence. Mm -hmm. that her life went on and she was able to do other things and that that her HIV never turned into AIDS and they never they never went to that well as like a ratings ploy or they never just said like we're going to absolutely destroy this woman's life just for the sake of, you know, popping a rating one week mm -hmm. um that it was treated with a little bit more humanity and a little bit more dignity and showing people that it didn't have to be a death sentence at a time like you said when it was still very stigmatized you know, I think that was a really like positive portrayal of that. And, and we actually got to talk to Gloria Rubin um, a little over a year ago, and she was kind of echoing the same sentiment that like she always appreciated that like Jeannie still got to have a life even after being HIV positive. Yeah, she wasn't just her status. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No, I I love Gloria Rubin. She is um, if I mean, if it's possible for her to be more lovely in every way, like more off screen, even than she is on screen. Um, she, she is that person. And I know she brought mm -hmm. a lot of, of, you know, personal stuff to the, to the table. And, um, yeah, it was really important for her. I mean, when, when you talk about, you know, a, an actor, you know, sort of having input, input into their character and, and I know mm. you know for her all of everything that you mentioned in terms of like you know I want to portray someone who is like living with HIV and not having it define me was was really important uh to her and I, I know especially you know Neil Bayer you know it was really close to his heart to you know make sure we were accurate about that portrayal but you know everyone you know down the line and and you know we we did our homework and you know we respected it um quite a bit so yeah um and then you again kind of touched on this a little bit you're very good at this flow thing you're very, <laughs> the, it's, it's almost like you're a writer uh what lessons if any did you take from your experiences on er in other shows that you've worked on since um you know it's it's kind of it does it does flow because um 
you know, that same level of, you know, veracity that we brought to our medical stories and, and, you know, that intersection of, uh, you know, technical and, uh, human, you know, that, that we brought to, you know, the whole Jeannie Boulay journey, um, you know, made me understand how important veracity is, you know, and it doesn't matter whether it's a medical show, a cop show, a lawyer show, you know, cattle rancher show, it doesn't matter. <laughs> um, you know, because uh, at the time there was a, a Kaiser Family Foundation study um, at the time we were airing, and I forget the number, but it was like scary high. I mean, it was something like 40 to 60%. I don't remember exactly what the percentage was, but it was a huge number of Americans at that time got their primary medical information from TV shows. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so it's like, this is, this is pre-internet. So I'm sure, you know, you could probably just extrapolate that number from, you know, this many get it from TV and this many get it from, you know, <laughs> Dr. WebMD, Dr. Yeah. Google. Yeah. You know um, but you know, a huge, a huge number of people um, you know, so we had this big responsibility to, to get it right. Um, mm. You know, and, and, you know, of course, within the context of, of people going through what might have been like, you know, a, a months long medical journey, you know, in an hour. But, you know, we, we really went out of our way to um, to make sure that our, our medicine was accurate and, and up to date. And, um, you know, I, I would say I'm also just indebted to John Wells for not just hiring me, but encouraging me as, you know, the new kid on the staff to speak up in the room and, you know, being involved in all aspects of production you know um especially now in this new reality of streaming shows that are these like super short orders um the the way they put those shows together is the writing is finished and the writer's room is finished before they roll a single you know piece of camera and so there's fewer and fewer opportunities for writers to get the skills that they need to eventually be producers Mm -hmm. so you know what we're doing in this sort of binging (laughs) utopia is um you know we're not giving um, you know, up and coming writers, the experience and the mentorship and, and the backup that they need to, to be able to do the producing part of the job. So we're giving people producer titles that, you know, that they haven't really earned and they, they're not really necessarily, you know, capable of, of, you know, doing, um, you know, and, and I think we're kind of setting people up for for, for failure instead of success. Um, you know, and I think it's kind of penny wise, patent foolish, you know, way to run a run a business, honestly, because it's going to be harder and harder to find competent, experienced mm-hmm. showrunners. So I'm part of me is wondering if like I know the Disney Plus model has moved back to um, the weekly release schedules to try and, you know, stretch their subscriber numbers a little further. But I'm wondering if maybe that's going to have an impact and maybe the pendulum swinging back the other way and maybe some writers rooms might get a little more little more chance probably not but we can hope <laughs> i mean dirty dirty little dirty little secret um i i just recently worked on an apple plus show and you know they're they're doling it out week to week mm-hmm. but it was the same model all done it yeah. was the yeah. same model <laughs> i i was gonna try and be optimistic but yeah i i, I could have guessed but yeah and that doesn't like you talked about earlier like that doesn't really give as much opportunity for um in-season flexibility like you said mm-hmm. if a storyline's not working there's not really as much opportunity to, to change that in midstream if everything's already pre-written and it's all just kind of there and you've released all 13 episodes at the same time. And if people aren't enjoying it, there's no opportunity for you to 
change course, course. even slightly because yeah. it's all done. So that's, that's yeah. got to be frustrating for you as a writer. Like, you know, I, I didn't get a chance to, uh, you know, edit this. Nobody ever been, nobody got to take a look at it until it was already finished. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's not that you stop getting plenty of notes from, you know, the studio, <laughs> the network and the powers of the beat. Right. You know, what it turns into is it ends up being like a, a you know, a one person writer's room, you know, where the mm. showrunner is having to do everything and often, right. you know, rebreak, you know, entire episodes or, you know, entire arcs all by themselves, which is, which is really kind of unfair. And, and once again, not really the best thing for a show. Cause I'm, I'm very much of the mind, you know, um, having come up in the ER school that, you know, more, more minds are better, you know, eight, mm -hmm. eight minds are better than one. And, you know, people are always going to bring some different perspective, some different life experience, some different, whatever, you know, to, to the table. And, and, you know, for me, stuff that's written with like a really strong room, all contributing, is mm -hmm. inevitably stronger on the screen than just one person's mind, no matter how brilliant that mind may be, being the mm -hmm. sort of mono voice. Right. Um, actually, the Apple Plus comment, the dirty little secret, um, are you working on any other projects currently? And how can fans of the show keep up with your work outside of ER? Yes, I am. I'm working, <laughs> working hard. Um, I'm blessed <laughs> to be very busy. Um, I'm the executive producer writer uh, on an Apple Plus show that's airing now called Swagger. Um, it's based on future NBA Hall of Famer uh, Kevin Durant's early days oh, yeah. um, playing yes. AAU basketball in the DC area. Um, so that's airing now. I think we're on episode five, so people can can get up on that. Um, um, also executive producing and writing on a limited series that's currently called iron. It might change the titles changed a bunch of times, but it's basically <laughs> it's for Hulu and it's about the, the life and times of Mike Tyson, the, the infamous boxer. Um, and the pilot for that, uh, and the pilot in the second episode were written by Steven Rogers, who wrote I, Tanya. So, um, if you were a fan of I, Tanya and, and those vibes, um, you'll, you'll probably love this. Um, so that that's going on. I wrote a couple episodes of that. They're shooting right now. Um, I'm actually going to jump on a, a plane. I just found out literally, I just found out a couple hour, hours ago, I'm going to jump on a plane to new Orleans, um, and be on set for that, uh, tomorrow. Wow. Um, nice. <laughs> yeah. So, um, well, well, thank you for keeping your appointment tonight. We appreciate it. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. I literally, I got like, I got booster shotted. I'm jumping on a plane. I'm talking about ER. It's, it's all happening. Um, busy, busy <laughs> uh, you know, so, so yeah. Yeah, so that one's scheduled to air uh, in spring 2022. Um, and then I'm developing a couple series of my own, both of which, um, you know, knock wood in success. We'll, uh, we'll, I'll be show running and we'll, we'll see them on the air someplace. Um, one is with Bruce Miller of Handmaid's Tale fame and ER fame. Um, yeah. And uh, another one with uh, Sean Ryan, who, you know, created the shield and terriers and, running SWAT. So, um, you know, just doing cool stuff with, with cool people. So, um, it's hectic, but it's, it's pretty amazing. <laughs> I, I just have to say it is so nice compared. I mean, a, we've, we've been grateful enough to be getting interviews since, um, December of 2019, I would say, or, you know, 
early 2020. It has been night and day to hear what people's answers are now compared to what they were a year ago because now we're all vaccinated and can actually go do things again. (laughs) So it's so good to hear people are busy again. (laughs) Yes, no, no, definitely. And, and, and yeah, and, and to be able to, um, you know, to, to produce material in the way that you want to and, and just, you know, interact and communicate, you mm-hmm. know, um, but I, I kind of ain't mad at, at Zoom, uh, you know, for some of the stuff. I mean, the fact that you can kind of, <laughs> you don't have to drive across town to, you it know, nice. have a 45 minute, you know, water bottle meeting with, with, you know, an executive that you're never going to talk mm-hmm. to again. That's, you know, I don't mind. Zoom. <laughs> Fair. So one final question that we've made a habit out of asking everybody, uh, what do you think it's important for fans of ER to know about it from your unique perspective? In other words, when you think back on your time on the show, what would you want fans to know about the experience that wouldn't necessarily be clear just from watching? Um, I think the biggest thing was the amount of social responsibility that everyone, you know, from the cast to the crew, to the writing staff felt, um, you know, we were very aware of how many people worldwide were watching the show. Um, you know, we were, like I said, we were getting 40, 45 million plus a week in the U S but I think we were on in like a hundred countries, you know, and this is before streaming, this is straight up linear, you know, I mean, I, I remember I went to Ireland one Christmas and I turn, you know, and I'm doing Christmas stuff and holiday stuff and hanging out with family. So I'm not sitting in front of the TV all day, but I turned on the TV seven different times. I saw episodes of ER airing when I was in <laughs> Ireland. So I was like, this is, this is insane. Um, so, you know, just given that and, and given what I was talking about before, you know, in terms of people getting their medical information, you know, from the show and information, you know, from everything, whether it be HIV or family planning or homelessness or, you know, so many, you know, important issues you know, people are getting this information, you know, from shows like ours. So, you know, because of that, everyone was just super committed to getting it right, you know, not just in terms of medical accuracy, but, you know, character portrayals and how the sets and how the costumes looked, you know, all of it, you know, I mean, if, if you went down to that set, ours was one of the, if not the first set, it was pretty rare that we actually had a ceiling, which is like, doesn't really seem like much, but you know, most mm-hmm. sets it's like an open box and the, the ceiling just goes up to the rafters. Like you're behind stage at a play, but ours had that kind of, you know, that, mm-hmm. that gross, like pebbly, mm-hmm. whatever that, you know, yep. that acoustic ceiling is, um, you know, and part of it was technical because they had to do those, you know, those long, you know, tracking shots or whatnot but it just it added to that feeling of like you walked on that set and you felt like you were in you know a county hospital um you know and and you know just in terms of all of that reality um you know from from the stories to to the characterizations to the set you know all of it was was honest um and it wasn't sugar-coated you know and it's that thing you know like the man Mm -hmm. said like the truth has a certain ring to it and you know, I think we were just all committed to, to delivering, you know, the truth in a in a very entertaining, beautiful package, of course. 